All righty. We are going to be continuing in the book of Shoftim this week. And I'm already noticing I uh, forgot to update the very first slide. So I guess we're going to see where this all goes from here on out. We're actually going to be in chapter 14 and 15 this week in the book of Shoftim. It is going to be found on page 286. I think I got that right in the complete Jewish Bible in the pews there. So for those of you who are visiting or who have not been with us in the past, uh, just a quick introduction. We are at a position, at a point within the history of the Israelites where Joshua has led the children of Israel into the land of promise. They have conquered the land, and now they're entering what's supposed to be a sweet time of rest. We're going to find out that it is not that, however. The, the wars are not over. They still have to go before their enemies, take care of problems there. They still need to expand the territory. Unfortunately, what we're going to find out is as we've gone through every single judge, and now we're going to be really getting into Shimshon this week, is that there's a cycle that takes place within the children of Israel. There, there's peace and prosperity. They become apathetic within that peace. Their apathy leads them to sin. They're then oppressed by outs nations outside of them. And then they're judged. And Adonai raises up a judge to not only help them in a physical sense to be delivered from their enemies, but also in a spiritual sense. As we began last week, we started to learn about Shimshon. And Shimshon's, Shimshon's life is full of all kinds of miracles. Uh, sometimes it's a little hard, though, especially growing up in the uh, situations that we came in. A lot of us come in from the Christian background, and um, quite often we're taught that Shimshon is a loser, that he's not a good guy. And yet, as I studied and spent time over the past couple weeks preparing, the rabbis of old have a very different take on Shimshon. Super interesting to me because it's a paradigm shift. But then I came to realize life is full of paradigm shifts. You know, we all thought we were A at one point, and then come to find out down through life as we have lived, we're not A, we're actually B, C, D, or E. You know, we're not who we were before we've all become something else. And that's what we're ultimately going to see within the life of Shimshon, is that Adonai is going to take a person and change them into who he wants them to be. And we see that because we, if we turn to the book of Messianic Jews, or the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 32 through 39, we see this about Shimshon. What more should I say? There isn't time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Shimshon, Yiftach, David, Shemuel, and the prophets, who, through their trusting, conquered kingdoms, worked righteousness, received what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, had their weakness turned to strength, great, mighty in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead resurrected. Other people were stretched on the rack and beaten to death, refusing to be ransomed, so that they would gain a better resurrection. Others underwent the trials of being mocked and whipped, then chained and imprisoned. They were stoned, sawed in two, murdered by the sword. They went about clothed in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. The world was not worthy of them. All of these had their merit attested because of their trusting. 
So the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is what we commonly refer to as the hall of faith. We see the great mighty man of God in this area. And it's interesting that we see Shimshon show up. This should be our first clue that there's more to Shimshon than meets the eye. Of course, we all kind of know the history of Shimshon, and he ends up dying in the end. And we think that it's because of this act that he has gained righteousness and right standing in the eyes of Adonai. And yet, I would put forth the challenge that it's not simply this act, but it's his act of life in living as he goes through and he comes toward a repentant state. Shimshon is going to be one of those examples in the Bible where we are giving some intimate understanding to what's going on. It's not just superficial. The last three judges we had, two short verses on them. Shimshon, Adonai is going to go, you know what? Shimshon is the man. I think he will not be offended if I show his shortcomings to the world. And then I show him overcoming those shortcomings. So that the world may know, may relate to Shimshon and understand that even though I mess up, forgiveness is there, repentance can be made, and honor can be restored as well. So as we move through the story of Samson's judgeship, we see that his life will reflect the spiritual condition of Israel at that time frame. They were able to accomplish such great things, such mighty things through the power of God. And yet they found themselves dry, apathetic. They needed the living water of God. They were in the midst of the sin cycle that we've talked about so often. The sin cycle that we all find ourselves in the midst of so often, don't we? So Shimshon, verse 1, went down to Timnah, and in Timnah he saw a woman who was one of the Pilishtim. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the Pilishtim. Now get her for me to be my wife. All right, he's direct, he's to the point, he's a straight shooter, he's seen a woman he likes, and he wants her. Unfortunately, she's one of the Philistines. And his father and mother pick up on that, and they say, his father and his mother replied, isn't there any woman from the daughters of your kinsmen among your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistine to find a wife, Samson? And Shimshon said to his father, get her for me. I like her. His father and mother didn't know that all this came from Adonai, who was seeking grounds for a quarrel with the Philistine, Because at that time, the Philistine were ruling Israel. So last time we were together, we talked about the fact that this occurrence with this judge, Sam Shimshon, is a little bit different than the ones in the past. Right now, the Israelites are living fairly peaceably. It's almost like they're not being oppressed by the Philistines religiously or physically in any manner. It's almost like they had a vote and their political opposition won. So they're just kind of buying their time. Okay, I can tolerate it. I'm fine with it, whatever. But Adonai says, no, you're that, that is not where you're supposed to be at because it's about to ramp up. It's about to get worse, and I'm, I'm going to try to help you to get out of this. So we know we found out from last time that Shimshon was used uh, via personal vendettas is what's going to happen here. 
So it's not the nation that's going to be offended. In fact, at one point, we're going to see the nation's going to abandon him and give him up for dead. So Adonai says, I need a person who can hold a personal grudge because I need to get some judgment accomplished with these pilishtim, and the nation is unwilling to step up. So we see that there's two primary schools of thought when it comes to the motive of Shimshon. The first one, the common one that's traditionally taught throughout the world, is that Shimshon was living his life in line with his fleshly desires. I've seen a woman. The Bible does give us uh, regarding warnings, excuse me, regarding the fleshly inclinations. We see in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, do not love the world or the things of the world. If someone loves the world, then love for the Father is not in him. Because all these things of the world, the desires of the old nature, the desires of the eyes, and the pretensions of life are not from the Father, but they're from the world. This word love that's used here in the Greek is agape. Now in the Greek, we know there are three different uh, forms of the word love. The first one is agape. This is a special kind of love. It's a love between God and his creation. It's the same love that we show each other as believers in Messiah. The second type of love is called phileo love. This is where we get the uh, root of the word uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So this is a brotherly love. This is a friendship love. This is a love you have with your family. And then the third type of love is eros. And you can guess where that word leads to. It's to the word erotic. It is the same word, the love that's used between a husband and a wife. A husband and wife have an eros type of love that no one else can share with them. So in this sense, we see that the writer of 1 John says, hey, don't agape the things of this world. Don't have this love that you're supposed to have for the Father, for the things of this world. The things of this world aren't bad. Money, cars, houses, we kind of need those things. We need clothes, we need food. Those things are what we need. But the moment we step from a need to a love, it then goes into an idolatry, and then it goes into worship. And so the writer of 1 John says, hey, don't agape these things. You need them, yeah. You need them to survive, but they're not your primary end-all, be-all. So the second thought goes along with the lines that Shimshon was actually privy to the plan of God, and he's trying to act accordingly. Now, this, isn't, this is the one that's normally not taught, and yet the rabbis tend to hang on this one quite often. It's, they've been accused in the past of being too gentle and looking for just the good in the heroes of old. But, you know, maybe we need to learn from that. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we spend too much time being negative. We always want to see the bad there in people, but we never want to see the good. You know, maybe that's their, their desire. That's the motivation behind doing this. And, you know, as I came to start to study this, I'm kind of going along with them now. It's an int I never thought I'd say that from this, from this uh, Bema. But I can see where they're going. Because in Ecclesiastes, it says everything is wearisome, more than one can expect express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear is not filled up with hearing. And we see that with Shimshon, I saw a woman. And so here's where I land now. I think it's yes and yes to both of these motives. 
I think, yes, he was privy being a judge, being called by God. He was privy that God was going to use him. Remember, he was called as a Nazarite from his birth. He knew there was a special calling on his life to deliver his people. And yet, as time goes by, he doesn't see it happening. And so finally, he's like, I guess I'm going to do it my way. And he starts to move out. So we see that he does have a plan. He does know what's supposed to happen. And yet he's yet letting his Yetzer Hurrah begin to lead him. Yetzer Hurrah is the evil inclination. We all have it. So verse 5, Shimshon went down with his father and mother to Timnah. When they came to the vineyards of Timnah, a young lion roared at him. And the spirit of Adonai came powerfully upon Shimshon, and barehanded he tore the lion to pieces as easily as if it had been a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or mother what he had done, that he went down and talked with the woman and found he still liked her. All right. So at some point, they start walking down to Timnah, and we see them part ways. And we know that they part ways because he kills this lion and he doesn't tell his parents. So they come to this vineyard and they part ways. Now, why are they parting ways? Because his parents are walking through the vineyard and he's walking around it. He's a netseer. He's not supposed to touch grapes. He's walking around it. So they're separated from this time and it's at this time that a lion jumps out to attack him. And he rips it in half with his bare hands. That's pretty crazy. So the, the lions that are in this area at this time, it's called, excuse me, it's called the uh, Asiatic lion. And they're not small. They're not as big as the African lions we come to know. But from toe to head, I mean, we're talking about four foot high. And that's a lot. I mean, if I saw a bobcat, I would flip out. I mean, we're talking a lion. Lion jumps up. The spirit of Hashem comes upon him, and he rips the thing in half. You know, and I kind of wonder if at this point he was walking down and maybe he considered, am I doing the right thing here? Should I be marrying this Pilistine woman? I could just imagine his mom and dad the whole time being, son, are you sure? That doesn't sound right. Why don't you marry within the children of God? Why do you need this Pilistine wife? And I'm sure he thought about it. Maybe I am doing the wrong thing. Is it the right choice to be doing this? But then this line jumps out. The spirit of Adonai comes upon him. He rips it in half, and then maybe he thinks, maybe. Adonai just delivered me. I must be doing the right thing. I must be going in the right direction, because otherwise the spirit of God would not come upon me, right? So he decided that the supernatural deliverance was confirmation of his mission. The last phrase, and he still liked her after this all happened. When he went down, he still liked her. And the Hebrew, it literally says, Ayin Yashar, she was smooth on the eyes. So Shimshon is being led. He's being led by God, but he's also being led by his inclinations as a man. Now, our sages have also debated these fi the finer points of Shimshon's inner struggles. Rav Moshe Elishach is send, says, by sending a lion toward him, God was hinting that Samson's intended marriage would be an unpleasant encounter, but by enabling him to kill the lion easily, God showed that he would not abandon him. Melvin chimes in and he says, it was a sign that he would prevail over the enemies of God. 
Radach even comes in too, and he says, The phrase, she's fitting in my eyes, foreshadows Samson's downfall. Although he began with pure intentions and motives, he became attracted by the beauty of the women he married, and thus was led astray. His eyes led him, so his eventual punishment was that the Philistine blinded him. There are three things, if I'm sure you can finish the phrase as I say it. There are three things that are common to man. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Everyone faces them. Everyone goes through them. Let's, can we stop pretending that we don't? <laughs> There's this pretension that comes within the body of Messiah that I'm better than the other person. That doesn't really get us anywhere, does it? Because when we come down and we relate to one another and we say, you know what, you've messed up, that's cool. I've messed up too. We've all messed up. But you know what? Our Messiah takes care of that for us. He helps us to be unified once again. And this is the story of Shimshon that I want to put forward. Not that he's the biggest mess up ever, but that he's trying his best to do what Hashem is calling him to do. And yet he keeps allowing his yetzer hurrah, his evil inclination, to have a little more power than the Yetzer Hatov, that good inclination. Verse 8, a while later, as he was returning to claim his bride, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. <laughs> That's a total guy thing, man. So he's gone back to his house, they're coming back now, and they've parted ways, because they're coming to the vineyard again, so they part ways, and he goes, you know what, I'm going to go check out that dead lion, see if it's still there. And he saw that there was now a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped the honey out, of, out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave them some, and they ate too. But he didn't tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion, because that's gross. <laughs> I wouldn't have told them either. So they're heading down for the wedding ceremony. He parts ways because they come to the vineyard. He checks out the lion. And then there's unique occurrence occurs where we have honeybees or bees of some sort that have made a hive inside of a dead animal. Now, honeybees aren't known for doing this. However, there are carnivorous wasps and there is the vulture bee. They're, they're known to do this. They will make a hive inside and they do produce a type of honey and it's referred to as a meat honey because it's made out of rotting flesh. However, so many miracles have been seen within Shimshon's life. What if these are actual honeybees? Why not? We've seen so many miracles take place. These could literally be real honeybees that are doing something completely out of the norm because Adonai is there and Adonai is showing them another miracle that I need you to continue on. I'm confirming that you have to go on. First time you killed this lion, and out of this dead thing, something sweet has come forth. Keep going. I'm confirming with you that you need to keep going. So verse 10, his father went down to the woman, and there Shimshon gave a banquet, because this is what the young men used to do. Now when the Philistine saw him, they provided 30 companions to be with him. Shimshon said to them, let me present you with a riddle. If you can solve it within the seven days of the banquet and tell me the solution, I will give you 30 linen shirts and 30 changes of good clothes. But if you can't solve it, 
you give me 30 linen shirts and 30 changes of clothes. And they answered, tell us the riddle. We want to hear it. Why not? The odds are 30 to 1. If they, they, they're like, we got seven days. There's 30 of us, and there's all kinds of other people coming. We could probably figure this out. I think this is a good deal. Let's seal this. However, they don't realize that the odds are not in their favor at all because they have absolutely no chance of finding it out because this was done in secret. So Shimshon said to them, out of the eater came food. Out of the strong came sweetness. Okay, we'll start to work on that. So three days passed, and they couldn't solve the riddle. Now on the seventh day, they said to Shimshon's wife, so the wording here can get a little confusing. So we have a seven-day feast for the wedding. Three days in, they're super upset, and they come to Shimshon's wife on the seventh day. When we see the seventh day reference in Scripture, it's in reference to the Shabbat. So it is on a Shabbat they're coming to her, and they're saying, hey, we have an issue. We need you to coax your husband into telling us the solution to the riddle. Otherwise, we'll burn down your father's house and you with it. You two called us here in order to turn us into paupers, didn't you? So they say, hey, there's an issue here. And it seems like you've just called us here to rob us. You want to become wealthy, and you've done this illegitimate thing in order to ensnare us. And you're in on it as well. Basically, they said, what kind of shenanigans are going on here? That is probably actually the right question for them to be asking, because Adonai is setting it up where a lot of Philistine are about to die. You know, he, Adonai puts road signs in our lives. You know, stop, yield, slow down, no left turn. But when we ignore these road signs that we see, we often get in trouble. So the Philistine had road signs placed in front of them as well, and they're just choosing not to see them but ultimately, we know it's because God has a plan to actually deal some punishment out to them. So Shimshon's wife went to him in tears and said, You don't love me. You hate me. You told a riddle to my fellow countrymen, and you haven't told me the answer. That's kind of fair. I mean, he, she's his wife. Shouldn't there not be secrets between husband and wife? However, we're seeing here that Adonai is setting up that there is about to be battle on lines drawn between the nation of Israel and the nation of the Philistine, to where his wife is going to side with the Philistine already, because we're going to find out in a couple verses here that she's been in on this from the beginning. So the battle lines are being drawn. There's tensions that are already erupting here. So he said to her, look, I haven't even told it to my father and mother. Should I tell you? And short answer is, yeah. <laughs> That's how marriage kind of works. But she had been crying throughout the seven days of the banquet. So she'd been crying from the beginning. So on the seventh day, because she had kept pressing him, he told her the solution, and she passed it on to her people. I kind of wonder sometimes when we see uh, uh, Shalomo talk about the, uh, the, the nagging wife and how it's better to dwell in the corner of the house on the roof away from the nagging wife. I kind of wonder, maybe he sat down and he was reading the book of Judges and he was like, I got a good one for my book. 
the nagging wife, it's better to be away. Maybe. Why not? Verse 18. Then before sundown on the seventh day, the men of the city said to him, what is sweeter than honey? So they waited till the last minute. And you know how someone gets when they're towards the end and they think they're going to win, and then all of a sudden they lose? Oh, they lose it. Waited till the last minute. And they said to him, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And Shimshon answered, if you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you wouldn't have solved my riddle now. Yeah, it's probably not the best thing on seventh day into your marriage that you start referring to your wife as a young heifer. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But uh, yeah. But he does have reasoning for saying this. So to plow with a young heifer, to plow with a young cow, it's a colloquial for the day. And basically, when you get a new cow, you want to train that cow to plow the correct way. So you yoke it up with an older cow at first, so they learn the correct way, and then when they become bigger and stronger, you yoke them with one that is their same size. But they have to learn the ropes first. And Shimshon says, you've gone into my wife, my wife, and you have violated my marriage relationship. So I can understand why he's a little perturbed. And he's not perturbed at her. He's like, hey, you're my wife. I love you. Probably shouldn't have done that, but I still love you. You guys, however, meddled in something you're not supposed to be a part of. And so then the spirit of Adonai came upon him powerfully. He went down to Ashkelon, killed 30 of their men, took their good clothes, and gave them to the men who had solved the riddle. He was boiling with rage. So he went straight up to his father's house, and his wife was given the, to the companion who had been the best man at the wedding. Not good. The spirit of Adonai came upon him powerfully. He is moving within the plan of God. Multiple times we've seen that the spirit of God is coming upon this man. Sure, is it a little unique the way he's doing things? Yeah. Is it the right thing to do? Maybe not all the time, but we still see that Adonai is honoring his mission. So why was Shimshon allowed to touch the dead bodies? Right? Because as a Nazarite, you don't touch grapes, you, um, you don't touch dead bodies, and you don't cut your hair. So why was he allowed to? Well, she, Shimshon falls into a unique Nazarite status called the Nazir Shimshon. It's named right after him. So if we look at Navir 4b in the Talmud, it says that Samson, even though he was a Nazarite, was allowed to contaminate himself to dead bodies because the angel who imposed the status on him omitted mentioning of the contamination of the dead. However, even without this status, Samson would have been permitted to touch the dead Philistines because his personal mitzvah of defending Israel required him to do so. Radek likens this to the commandment that a Kohen or Nazarite is required to bury a Jew who has no one to attend to him. The commandment to bury the forlorn corpse overrides the prohibition not to contaminate himself. So too, Samson was performing a mitzvah by attacking the Philistines. From this, time, from this we see that there are times in life when we may be called upon to sacrifice our own personal thoughts on ceremonial cleanliness for the betterment of others. Sometimes EMTs need to work on a Shabbat because people get hurt all the time. 
We see our master Yeshua exemplify this in his teaching regarding the Good Samaritan. So Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, an expert in Torah stood up to try to trap him by asking, Rabbi, what should I do to obtain eternal life? But Yeshua said to him, what is written in the Torah? How do you read it? And he answered, you are to love Adonai, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your understanding, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the right answer, Yeshua said. Do this and you will have life. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Yeshua, who's my neighbor? Taking up the question, Yeshua said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him naked and beat him up, then went off, leaving him half dead. By coincidence, a Kohen was going down on that road. But when he saw him, he passed to the other side. Likewise, a Levi who reached the place and saw him also passed on the other side. They didn't want to become ceremonially unclean. But a man from Shamron, who was traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. So he went up to him, put oil and wine on his wounds, and bandaged them. Then he set him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Look after him, and if you spend more than this, I'll pay you back when I return. Of these three, which one seems to have become the neighbor of the man who fell among robbers? And he answered, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Yeshua said to him, you go and do as he did. So Yeshua agrees with the rabbis that there are times in life when we may be called upon to sacrifice our own thoughts and ceremonial cleanliness for the betterment of others. This doesn't mean that we go out and we seek to do evil things on purpose, but it means that we must be willing to love our neighbors as ourselves. Back to Judges. But after a while, we're in chapter 15, verse 1. During the wheat harvest season, Shimshon went to see his wife. He brought a young goat for her and said to her father, I want to go to my wife in her room. But he wouldn't let her. Her father said, I really thought you hated her altogether, so I gave her to your best man. But her younger sister? Isn't she even prettier? Why not take her instead? Shimshon said to them, this time I'm through with the Philistine. I'm going to do something terrible to them. The Kli, uh, excuse me, the Klilakar suggests that Samson knew she was living with someone else adulterously and was planning to use her betrayal as a new pretext to attack the Philistine. He'd gone away, he'd come back. Obviously, there's something amiss. They are married. The scripture refer to them, refers to them, and the people of the Pilistim will refer to him as her husband. She's living in, in adultery, and the whole community is supporting it. So he says, this time, I'm through with the Pilistim. And about 95% of the translations out there, it's actually translated, this time I will be blameless for the Philistines. I'm not sure why the complete Jewish Bible does this this way, but I kind of like the other translation because Samson is about to take out some vengeance on these people and a lot of Philistines are about to die. And yet he's blameless because the entire community has chosen to cover up this adulterous relationship and say that it is okay. So Shimshon went and caught 300 foxes or jackals 
Then he took torches, tied pairs of foxes to each other by their tails, and put a torch in the knot of every pair of tails. Then he set the torches on fire and let the foxes loose in the wheat fields of the Pilishtim. In this way, he burned up the harvested wheat along with the grain waiting to be harvested and the olive orchards as well. We see another miracle here. Even though we see destruction here, how in the world did this man catch 300 foxes? I think I'm going to put this right in the category of how did Noah get all the animals to come to the ark? Adonai called them. Adonai is being seen throughout all of this. So the Pilishtim asked, who did this? And they answered, Shimshon, the son-in-law of the man from Timnah, because he took Shimshon's wife and gave her to his best man. So Shimshon's wife, they see her and him as married. Then the Pilishtim came up and burned both her and her father to death. Okay, violence begets violence. This is unending. So Shimshon said to them, I will certainly have my revenge on you for doing such a thing. But after I do, I'll stop. So basically he's saying, I'm going to do one more thing. Don't do anything else. Else I'm going to have to respond once again. Infuriated, he began killing them left and right. It was a massacre. Then he went down and stayed in the cave at the Etam Rock. So Shimshon acted as the avenger of blood because his wife and his father-in-law were killed. But then the Philistine went up, pitched camp in Yehuda, and attacked Lichai. The men of Yehuda said, why are you attacking us? And they replied, to arrest Shimshon. That's why, to treat him the way he treated us. Because remember, the Philistines are over the entire land right now. So then 3,000 men from Yehuda went down to the cave at the Etim Rock and said to Shimshon, don't you know that the Philistim are our rulers? What are you doing to us? And he answered, I've only treated them the way they treated me. They said to him, we've come down to arrest you and to hand you over to the Philistim. Shimshon replied, swear to me that you won't fall on me yourselves. And they said to him, no, but we will tie you up and hand you over to them. However, we promise not to kill you. So they tied him up with two new ropes and brought him from the rock. When he got to Lechai, the Pilishtim came running and shouting at him, and the spirit of Adonai came on him powerfully. The ropes on his arms became as weak as the burnt flax and fell from his arms. He found a fresh donkey bone jaw, took it in his hand, and with it he struck down a thousand men. Shimshon said, with the jawbone of a donkey, I left heaps piled on heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I killed a thousand men. So we have two options here. This could literally be the jawbone of a donkey that he uses. It's got a natural handle on it. And it's pretty sharp on the edges there. It's very strong. It's a, if, if we follow the scripture directly, it says that it's a young one. That means it's freshly dead. So that means it's harder. It's not brittle. It could also be the Egyptian kopesh. It's just shaped like the leg of an animal. Either way, a thousand men being slaughtered is a big deal. However, a thousand men being slaughtered with a bone of an animal is an even bigger miracle. I kind of like that. I'll go that way. I like that. Heaps upon heaps. 
this is possibly a play on words here, for the word chamor is used to represent a donkey or a heap. And so we see, if we're translating it directly, is donkeys upon donkeys, or if this is possibly the donkey jawbone is referring to a weapon, we could say, Samson said, hey, I got weapons upon weapons. Look at these guys. I took care of them all. That's kind of a logical concept. Maybe that helps us out a little bit. But I'm okay with it being the jawbone of a donkey because, like I said, that's an even greater miracle. So after he finished speaking, he threw the jawbone away. And the place came to be called Ramat Lachai, Jawbone Heights. Then he felt very thirsty, so he called on Adonai, saying, You accomplished this great rescue through your servant. But am I now to die from thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God made a gash in the crater at Lachai, and water came out. When he had drunk, his spirit came back, and he, re he was revived. This is why the place was called in Hakori, the spring of him who called. And it is there in Lachai until now. He judged Israel in the period of the Pilishtim for 20 years. It's interesting that this is the same phrase that we hear at the end of a judge's life, and yet we're only halfway through Shimshon's judgment. Something drastic is about to change. Perhaps his approach was a little unorthodox, but we can't deny that in some strange way, Shimshon's heart was towards his people and the deliverance of his people. They had great potential to do such great things, and yet, like we said earlier, they found themselves in a dry area needing living water. Shimshon understands this. He, great deliverance happens, and yet he says, I thirst. I need water. We see that as we enter into the book of Shemot, that the children of Israel will cry out and they say, I thirst, I need water. And we know that that rock that followed them through the wilderness was Messiah that to provide that living water to them. Finishing up, we're going to go, as we close back to the passage we started in and continue on. So Messianic Jews, or the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. So then, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, too, put aside every impediment, that is, the sin which easily hampers our forward movement, and keep running with endurance in the contest set before us, looking away to the in initiator and completer of that trusting, Yeshua, who in exchange for obtaining the joy set before him, endured execution on a stake as a criminal, scorning the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, think about him who endures such hostility against himself from sinners so that you won't grow tired and become despondent. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in the contest against sin. So as we close today, we're reminded that we have all been called to be part of this race, which is called life. Our own yetzer hurrah or evil inclination is always crouching at the door ready to pounce. But we're supposed to contend against it. Are we perfect? Not by far. But we still press on. When a, when a boxer gets knocked, knocked down, he gets back up. And that's what we're supposed to do as well. And we do this by setting our si eyes on the one who conquered death, Yeshua our Messiah. 
And we do this by following the example that he set forth, by resisting the evil inclination. And it's only through that that we will gain victory. Shabbat shalom.